I've learned so much from Stephen's podcast this year, but taking the class with him this summer was really so much more informative. I really like podcasts, and I suspect you probably do too. But sometimes you need something deeper. Sometimes you need something more dynamic. Which is why Tent Theology will be running a spring school, starting on the 29th of March and running every two weeks until the 3rd of May. At the spring school, we will be going line by line through the Sermon on the Mount. There'll be space for teaching, input, and conversation. All the classes are online, and I've arranged them to meet as many time zones as possible. It's a lot of fun. Last summer, I ran something similar, and I asked some of the students for their feedback and to see if they would recommend something like this to anyone else. I enjoyed wrestling with the great theological material that Stephen recommended and guided us through, and this all made sense to me despite my lack of theological training. A Stephen Backhouse Bible study is like no other. It is awesome. It is next level Bible studying. It was wonderful to read all these great texts that he put in front of us and discuss them with people all over the world. I'm definitely going to be joining the next class. For prices, times, and to register, send an email to info at tenttheology.com. Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Welcome, Bishop Graham Tomlin to the Tent Theology Podcast. We're so glad you could join us. Now, I need to get one thing out of the way very quickly. I feel very awkward calling you Bishop Graham. <laughs> well, don't feel you have to. You can feel very relaxed about just calling me Graham. You've known me as Graham for quite a long time. I've known you. I've known you. You were my, full disclosure, you were my lecturer when I was an undergraduate. You lectured me in Reformation history. Do you remember yeah. that? Do you know I that? Think I, I think I did many, many years ago, back in yeah. Oxford, isn't it? And so I've yeah. known you for, for all that time. And now when I write you emails, I have to put a little plus sign next to your name yeah. because you're Bishop Graham. Well, when you first knew me, I was not a bishop at all. And um, you called me Graham then. You can call me Graham now. It's absolutely fine. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it's great to, great to be on the Tent Theology podcast. Really yeah, it's really good to have you here, especially because we're all about reimagining the social and political imagination. And you are someone who actually has a hand to play in social and political reimagining of Britain, mm. which is why it's really good to have you here. We're going to talk about that in a bit. We're going to talk about the housing work you've done. We're going to talk about the your interactions with the Grenfell Tower disaster, yeah. because you are the Bishop of Kensington and Grenfell happened in your past yeah. that you are. And But I also want to talk about some of the stuff you've been writing, some of the work you've been doing, and just how you negotiate some of these spaces of social and political life while also being a, a public figure who represents yeah. the church of england so i imagine there's some if if we touch on some buttons that you don't want me to press some landmines then just wave your hands <laughs> <laughs> and i'll hastily change the subject <laughs> well i'm sure we'll dodge them very carefully have you have you ever got in trouble i know some of your colleagues have have you ever got in trouble because you're, you're quite active on twitter and social media as well have you ever accidentally had to delete anything or said the wrong thing yeah occasionally you do um you occasionally get things timed a little bit wrongly Right. Um, 
I did a, did a tweet a little while ago. Um, I just felt one day, I, I was talking to some of our clergy and thinking they, they had a pretty hard time during lockdown. And, and a lot of them had done really heroic work, keeping their churches together and doing online services. And so I kind of tweeted out something and saying how, you know, how, what a great job they'd done. And, you know, maybe we should have a sort of clap for clergy as opposed right. to kind of the NHS. It was a slightly sort of tongue in cheek thing. Um, unfortunately, it was the same day that um, the report came out on uh, sort of, you know, on basically, you know, abuse within the church. Right, right. This dreadful story of stuff that's happened in the church in the past that's been sort of connived at and and, and uh, not taken, paid attention to. Yeah, right. It was an example of one of those rather badly tweeted, badly timed tweets that was, you know, intended well, but actually didn't land very well because it was just the wrong, the wrong time to be saying that the clergy are doing a great job. Um, because the, both are true, you know, clergy are, many clergy are doing a great job, but it's also true that, yeah. sometimes mess up and we haven't been very good as a church at the safeguarding side of things so yeah you can tread on landmines and yeah, i've occasionally written articles that have just you know rubbed people up the wrong way but that's part yeah. of the deal isn't it really you can't be popular all the time do you do you uh shy away from being are you party political or do you do you uh, worry about showing your your colors is yeah, this something not... you're asked not to do or is this something that you choose not to do um, I'm not particularly party political. Right. Um, I mean, I, I, um, I mean, I have my political allegiances, so you know the ways in which I, I vote. Um, although they're not sort of hard and fast one way or the other, and I tend yeah. to think, as a Christian, particularly as a Christian leader within the church, uh, I'm not that that actually it's quite good in some ways to sort of stand a little bit apart from the the details of party politics. That doesn't mean being apolitical. Right. Because I don't think you can be apolitical as a, as, a, as, a, as a Christian leader, but I think so. You know, as, as, as you explore in your in your podcast a great deal, it's, you know, it seems to be that Christians have to be involved in politics, but not necessarily in you know, buying into one or the other of the political systems that are there uh, in place. I mean, I, I read recently. I'm sure you know um, James Mumford's book, which is all about this this question about how you know we're we're, we're offered these political. Um, packages that we're supposed yes. to buy into on left right. or right or right. Democrat, American or, or British or whatever. Yeah. But actually, when you dig into the kind of underlying kind of moral um, structure of them all, actually, they're, they're often rather inconsistent and actually don't map easily onto a Christian sort of view of the world. Yeah. Which is why I'm, I'm sort of always slightly reluctant to get into particular party politics. You might yeah. have a view on this issue or that issue. Yeah. Uh, on, you know, one issue you might agree with the government, on, on another issue you don't. Yeah. Um, it often strikes me how bishops are often maybe criticised for, for being critical of, of the government of the day. But it strikes me that that's actually in some ways part of our job to do that. And, you know, maybe sometimes people think, oh, we're critical of the Conservative government right now. But if there was a Labour government in part, we'd be critical of them yeah. too. Because yeah, part yeah. of the job of bishops and the church is actually to point out when something has gone awry, where something has gone off the um, the moral course of truth. And, and and to point that out. And so I think that's where I am on it. I'm not particularly part of party political, but I do think right. I'm political because you can't avoid being political. Yeah, I think it's, it, I, I I was talking to a friend of mine just this morning and he said, oh, something about like Jesus isn't political. And I just thought, I think there's probably not a single page in the entire New Testament, which isn't political in some way. Hmm. Like, I don't yeah. think it's possible. I, I admit Jesus might not line up under some sort of red or blue checklist yep. of things to agree with but I, I can't imagine that being a follower of jesus doesn't make you political in some way it just seems impossible to me yeah what was it, the it, i it, mean you didn't grow up as a young young graham tomlin didn't didn't grow yeah. up with with the 
with a starry-eyed ambition to be a bishop in, in Kensington, did you? Like, what? Certainly tell not, us not. about your social, political imagination that you were born into. Yeah, well, I was I was born into a um, a Christian family. Yep. My it was a sort of family which had roots in was actually primarily Baptist. My my mum was a, um, from an Irish Baptist family. My dad okay. trained at the Irish Baptist College in in Dublin. Although yeah. he was sort of um, English by by origin, they kind of moved over to to England before I was born. So I was born here. Although my family and roots are in in Ireland, really. Um, and I suppose it was a kind of looking back on it, it was a maybe slightly sort of pietistic, um, evangelical, non-conformist mm-hmm. sort of upbringing mm-hmm. um, that. Uh, viewed the gospel largely in spiritual terms it wasn't a household that was largely involved in politics it was a household where um, evangelism building the church um, the spiritual life prayer mm-hmm. uh, was something that was quite important i suppose that the sort of baptist around a baptist tradition um, there's one aspect of it which is quite political you know commitments and, uh, but but there's other strand to it which is it's quite sort of pietist and, and tries to keep away from that. And I think ours was slightly more in the kind of pietist view of the world, really. Get your head down. Don't, yeah, get don't your head down, say your prayers, evangelize your friends. Right. You know, save yeah. them from the, from the world into the ark of salvation. And uh, I think I grew up a little bit with that. And maybe in, during the student years, it was still a little bit of that as well. Uh, I think at the same time, though, having studied, I mean, I, I went to university and studied studied English for my first degree. Okay. Um, I was always interested in literature and history, the history of ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think it was at that time beginning to kind of discover the, um, the ways in which Christian faith had been expressed over the years, the ways in which Christian faith had shaped culture for better or worse over, over those years. And therefore you couldn't quite avoid these wider sort of cultural and intellectual yeah, right. political questions that were around. Yeah. The Christian world wasn't actually a little bubble apart from the world where we were trying to keep ourselves safe from the contamination of the world but actually it was something that was deeply involved in it yeah and um, so that was part of that kind of ongoing journey and then on to study theology later on well i actually i'm just now realizing and this is going to sound really creepy as if i'm really sucking up to you but i'm just now realizing i think i read your doctorate did yeah. you publish your doctorate on power was that on the crucifix on power and the cross yeah it was i did i did a doctorate on um it was it was eventually published as the power of the cross yeah um, theology of the cross in, in paul luther and pascal basically what it was was um a study of uh, of how our understanding of god is shaped by the death of jesus yeah and it, it started with that so there's those texts in early one corinthians where paul talks about the cross as the foolishness and the wisdom of god the power yeah. of god is that the power and the weakness of god and then if you like take to seeing how that idea uh, was used in later theological history. Yeah. And two examples on two sides of the great confessional divide in Western Christendom. You know, one Martin Luther, you know, who, who took the idea of the cross, the foolishness of God, very seriously in his early theology and his theology mm-hmm. of the cross. Uh, but then also, also Blaise Pascal, in the in the seventeenth century, he also writes quite a lot about the sort of foolishness of uh, of the cross that, and kind of wisdom and and so on. And, and I guess seeing all three of them in some ways as expressing an understanding of power. Yeah. And the, the cross itself as being an expression of how power is given away, used, um, and therefore sort of subversive of forms of, you know, the use of power for domination, either in, you know, the yeah. church in Corinth in, in the first century or in the kind of medieval church in Luther's context or in the, 
context of 17th century France in, in, in Pascal's time. Well, this is very Anabaptist now. <laughs> now we're getting into Anabaptist yeah. territory where when you start to talk about power and how you use it, this is the Anabaptist approach to politics, yeah. really. Were, were yeah. you thinking like a Baptist or an Anabaptist when you were writing this PhD? Uh, not consciously so, but I often right. I reflect on how actually my sort of Baptist origins still lurk around. You, yeah. know, you, you never sort of shed your childhood, do you? And um, I really uh, want to know, was, it, was there tense and frosty discussions around the dinner table when you said you were going to become an Anglican? <laughs> well, I do remember the conversation with my dad. My dad was a Baptist minister. He was a slightly died in the wool Baptist, really. To, yeah. and, uh, uh, remained a sort of Baptist minister till his dying day, although he, he combined you know, a teaching job with being a, being a Baptist pastor uh, in his later years. But um, I remember having that conversation. At the end of the day, he was happy I was a Christian okay. and okay. I was entering into ministry. I mean, he would have rather I was a Baptist, you know, because um, he didn't really believe in bishops. He didn't really believe in, in infant baptism. Right. And, you know, I had to think those things through when I became an Anglican. Yeah. I can remember going to talk to a friend of ours who knew my family very well, you know, and thinking, I'm thinking of becoming an getting ordained as an Anglican because I've been going to Anglican churches as a student. And he said, well, you know, would you baptize a baby? Yeah. And then, well, I hadn't thought about that really. So I had to really go away and think about it. So, um, so I had to, you know, think through my, you know, what it really meant to become an Anglican. And, and I, mean, I think I am a pretty convinced Anglican now, but still with some sort of Baptist tinges to my theology and ecclesiology and politics, I think as well. <laughs> Did they make you take some sort of uh, ideological purity test? when you uh, when you joined the anglican church did you have no, to not really denounce your non-conformist ways no sad no no i'm glad they didn't actually because i think i think there's a lot of um yeah i mean as you know the anglican church is a really broad thing very broad tent yeah different yeah. parts of the world and, and parts of the church yeah and, you know there's there's parts of, there are many sort of ex-nonconformists who found themselves into into the anglican church as there are many ex-Roman Catholics or Orthodox. Exactly. It's a place that can sort of embrace a wide range of people. So yeah, It really seems to. So how did you go from thinking of someone who's, if you thought about politics at all, you probably thought it was not for you and that salvation was primarily an inward movement of the heart and inward regeneration. So where, how did you get from there to now being the person who sometimes will publicly put his name to things about the way the the poor are being treated or the Grenfell yeah. Yeah. residents are being like, how, how did you become a more politically active? Your imagination became bigger. So what happened? Well, I think it's probably uh, looking back, it's probably two stages really. One is a sort of intellectual journey. The other is a kind of more personal practical journey. I mean, the intellectual journey I think is that in the study of theology and, you know, I'd, I'd say I did my English degree, yeah. you know, went off and did a job for a few years and went off to train to ordination. I did a, did a degree in theology and then did my doctorate after that. And, and I guess my, my area of study in, in um, theology was, was what I call historical theology. So it was basically the way in which Christian uh, theology and ideas have developed over the years, how they've interacted yeah. with society and culture. Um, so I was never particularly interested just in, if you, if you like, pure doctrine, as if you could somehow abstract doctrine from historical circumstances mm -hmm. or historical periods. I was always more interested in the way in which Christian theology impacted culture and shaped it. Um, it never really takes over culture. I don't believe it can do that. I don't really believe there's such a thing as a sort of Christian yeah. civilization or a Christian nation as such, but it's had an impact upon culture all the time. That's what interested me, really. Yeah. I suppose it's in the study of that, and particularly in the study of the Reformation period, which is where I sort of did most of my, um, I'd say my, my 
origins of the doctoral work and then on teaching yeah. theology after that in Oxford and elsewhere. Um, you know, in the Reformation period, you can't really divide theology and, 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 and politics in society. You begin yeah, to exactly. it has a, um, you know, it ha it, the two things are all bound up together uh, because actually if Christian faith is talking about life, it's talking about the life that people live together in the city, the polis. Yeah. Uh, it has to be about politics in that broad sense, not about party politics, but it has to be our life together. Yeah. And, and and life together in not just in the church but in the world, yeah. and that recognition that you know the world has a theological significance as well as the church does. Um, so I think it was, it was it's sort of intellectually that that kind of journey of becoming a historical theologian and made me realise that that you can't really separate out these two things. I guess the yeah. the other big part of the journey is that you know actually becoming a bishop did make a difference for me. Right. I suddenly realised that on the one hand things that I said suddenly got listened to and then in a way that I never thought before yeah um and I can remember you know early days as a bishop being asked to come and give a talk at um at a, at a conference about prisons um because you know one of the things I have responsibility for in London is is is, is prisons and prison chaplains and so I right. think a little bit about well, you know what do Christians have to say about prisons I gave this little talk and thought well I thought nothing more of it and suddenly found there's a there's an article in the church times the week after you know right. there's this yeah so, Bit of a surprise that you know people listen to um, uh, to this, and, and so you know I began to find that 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 people were interested in what I said as a bishop in a way they weren't when I was just a theological college principal or, or, or tutor. Mm -hmm. And I suppose the other thing is you know when something like Grenfell Tower happens in your area, and uh, the, the fire happened in one of the parishes I'm responsible for, uh, and at that moment you've got this choice: either you just sort of withdraw into yourself and don't get involved and um almost ignore it mm -hmm. it just felt it was impossible to do that it was such a big event not just in london but across the country and across the world that you know that and it was almost an instinct on the day itself to kind of get on a train get up there get as near as i could walk the last little bit because you couldn't get very very near otherwise and just to throw yourself into the yeah into the to the middle of it and once you're in it you can't avoid the kind of wider political questions the questions about um, how people are housed, how the poor are treated, you know, how community works, how rich and poor live alongside each other and how they relate, because they're all part of that question. And if we as Christians have nothing to say about that, mm -hmm. it seems to me we're not going to find any hearing for the gospel uh, kind of more widely. So it seems to me that, you know, the, 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 my sort of instinct towards evangelism and sharing the faith mm -hmm. uh, is linked into this, this, this business of what we say about culture, what we say about politics, um, because it, that is the expression of the gospel in those particular contexts. And so, so I think those are the two parts. Yeah. Of the and I suppose being a, a ordained, like, so the Church of England is not, I, for our American listeners, they might assume that because it's the Church of England, it's some state-sponsored wealthy institution that sort of rules the country. That is not any, none of those things are true. <laughs> nice. it, it receives no money from the state. It is not a state-sponsored religion, but it is the Church of England, mm. and uh, and vicars and bishops traditionally wear collars. And we know, don't we, that some of our friends wearing collars were the very first people on the scene at the Grenfell mm. Tower. Yeah. And I wonder whether, how did you feel about that? Like being a being a, a pastor to the nation, as it were. And being yeah. a representative, did that? Did you find that the collar? I mean, that's something a Baptist minister, for example, wouldn't have been able to perhaps have yeah. access to that kind of 
front line. Yeah, well, there were particular moments when I remember on the day of the fire, you know, 14th of June, 2017, uh, I remember waking up and, you know, hearing about the fire and getting on the train and, and making my way up there. Mm. And uh, I remember thinking on the way, okay, what am I going to do when I get there? Yeah. I haven't really thought about that. Yeah. Um, anyway, I got, I got an email through from uh, the Metropolitan Police Chaplain, uh, giving me the phone number of the local borough commander, the police officer who was in charge of the police operation around the tower. So I, I rang her up and said, look, you know, I'm Graham Tomlin, I'm the Bishop of Kensington, I'm on my way up, you know, is there anything I can do? And, and, mm -hmm. um, and I think because I was the bishop, because I had that particular sort of name and state status within the society, even though sometimes we think the church is sort of, you know, pushed out and really doesn't have any power anymore, it still has a certain currency spiritually and morally and so actually she she responded oh it's, it's fantastic you've you've rung you know we would love you to if you could get together a group of other clergy and just to be at the base of the tower and talk right. to some of the firefighters that are going in in and out because they're having a it's a pretty sort of desperate job they're yeah. having to do yeah um and uh so actually we were i think probably the only non-emergency service people allowed into the cordon around the base of the tower on the morning of the fire yeah, uh, it was just police, ambulance, um, ambulance service, uh, obviously the firefighters uh, and clergy. And that was because there was a recognition that uh, in times of pastoral, personal, spiritual need, the church is kind of there. Well, it's not always immediately there. They wouldn't. I think they wouldn't have rung and rung me up to say, you right. know, come in. Right. Because I rang them and said, look, we are here. We are available. Yeah, we want to be involved. That, that the invitation was readily yeah. um, uh, accepted. That's um, a very interesting distinction. It wasn't. Yeah. They weren't ringing you up because they saw you as uh, as as a wing of the state emergency. No, exactly. yeah. But you were able to ring them up. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. And you know, I think I mean, the reality is of the church at the moment. You know, we are in a very different place than we were even 50 or 100 years ago you know we're yeah. no longer the unquenched unquestioned providers of religion within british society mm -hmm. you know, increasingly we we take our place at the table alongside other denominations and other faiths um it's very interesting during the recent pandemic you know the government has been dealing with a sort of faith leaders group uh, which is which comprises anglicans but also muslims and hindus and sikhs and mm -hmm. and uh, non-conformists and roman catholics and everybody else and so we no longer have quite that privileged position. But having said that, there's still something about the being the established church, uh, being a bishop that does carry still a certain weight. I think it's a weight that you you can't assume is going to be going to give you any right. privileges. Yeah. But it's something you can use proactively if you're if you want to step out and you know take your life in your hands. Sometimes it gives you an opening. It opens doors that that, that other other things don't do. Yeah. Um, and I, I, my other reflection on it is that it's a little bit on the parish system uh, in the Church of England. So we have this, this thing, the parish system, where every single inch of, of England is in someone's parish. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what, what that means is that mm. so when, when a disaster happens like Grenfell, it always happens in somebody's parish. It's yeah. on someone's patch. Someone has spiritual responsibility for that area. Right. Um, and uh, that's actually quite significant in a way. And I, I think that's actually also part of Anglicanism's political theology. Because if you're a vicar of a church or you're a bishop of an area as I am, it, it, Anglican ecclesiology says that we're not just interested in those who go to church. Yeah. We're actually interested in those who don't go to church. 
and what happens to them and their life and their prospects and their and you know what what's whether justice or justice isn't done around them so we're interested yeah. in yeah you know, we want to build up the church as a as, as, a, as a community that's called to to worship and to witness um to the god of jesus christ but we're also also interested in the whole of the life of, of a community mm-hmm. uh, that's why it seemed to be natural to be there at the base of grenfell tower and to speak into the issues that it raised yeah and you weren't representing the you weren't like flying the flag for the church of you weren't saying i'm here for for my anglican people you were saying i'm no. here f- because this is my patch and exactly. anybody, yep. yeah yeah how yeah. does this feed into uh, was this why uh, tell let's talk about the housing commission mm. so well you you explain it better because you are the chair of the housing commission <laughs> the vice chair the vice chair the vice yeah. chair so how yeah. did this come about uh was this because of your grenfell connections and interests yeah well i think what, the way it came about is that the archbishop justin the archbishop of canterbury wrote a book uh i think it's back in uh, 2018 called um uh, reimagining Britain. It was yeah. basically a kind of manifesto, if you like, of his vision for a renewed Britain that was based around, you know, values of you know, the Christian faith. And uh, there's a number of chapters in it and on different aspects of, of, uh, um, of life, education, family, e- economics, um, and so on. And one chapter was on housing. Mm. And I think he had the idea that uh, obviously the chapters were pretty brief. He wanted to dig into the detail of these and to kind of explore what this would, what a Christian contribution would be in these different areas. And one of the first, the first thing he wanted to look at was housing. And yeah. that may have been because housing had become a major issue in British life, particularly because of Grenfell. Um, and I guess because I, I, you know, I, I did a lot of media work around Grenfell, and I guess was sort of seen as the face of the church involved in, in the Grenfell Tower fire, and obviously it raised issues about housing and housing safety and housing justice and so on. Uh, and I'd begun to read around that and get to know it, know the kind of you know history and uh, and politics and uh, of housing. And so, um, so Archbishop Justin asked me if I would uh, be the vice chair, the episcopal lead on the commission. Um, yeah. And uh, the commission was um, uh, was we kind of wanted it not just to be about housing. We wanted it to be about, it wasn't just a sort of another political voice on housing, but we wanted it to be, to be about housing, church and community. Because the key, key inside at the heart of Archbishop Justin's chapter was that we don't just need to build more houses, we need to build good communities. Right. And uh, that's something that's at the heart of Christian faith. And the Christian Christians and the Christian church has had a long experience of building community life. We've been doing it for 2000 years. Neighborhoods, yeah. About, yeah, exactly. We know a little bit about communities and how they work. Um, so what what might a Christian contribution to the housing crisis in in the UK or even beyond that look like? Yeah, that yeah. was really the motivation behind the commission. How does it work? How is it meeting up? And yeah, well, we've the, been meeting. What's the outcome? We've been meeting for the last sort of eighteen months or so, and yeah. um, we established quite quickly that we wanted there was a number of different strands to the commission's work. The, the, the heart of it was going to be uh, we wanted to, to to have a theological vision of housing. Yeah. So this was not just another report on housing, because there are the tons of them come out all the time. Uh, but this is what is the church, particularly as the body of people whose primary calling is to worship the God of Jesus Christ and to bear witness to that God. But, you know, what what is our what, what what does what does housing look like when viewed through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Mm-hmm. So, story, what does housing look like? <laughs> so, yeah. Bishop so that was our, that what was. What does our, housing look like when it's seen through the lens? Yeah, well, I'll come on to that in a moment because just okay. give, you, give you the structure of the um, the commission. Yeah. So we wanted to get some good theologians along, so we invited you. And you're a commissioner too. I'm on there. Yeah. 
be great to work together on this. So we had a theology strand. We had a strand which was looking at, um, at politics about, uh, about, you know, housing policy in the nation. What do we say to government about what uh, housing should, should be? But we also realized that before we start talking to government, we've actually got to get our own house in order. Yeah. We as the Church of England, major landowners, we own buildings, we own some property. Uh, we need to look at the way we're using housing, how we're uh, you know, approaching this issue, and are we doing it in the right kind of way? Um, so there's a strand which is talking to kind of major inst- church institutions, the church commissioners, diocese. And there's a strand that's talking about what, a lo- what can local churches do about housing need in their mm-hmm. local area, and then what individuals I can do as well. How does this play out in individual discipleship? So that was the structure of it, but the kind of heart of it was the um, this uh, you know sort of theological vision for housing. Yeah, and uh, our vision was to try and make not the theology just like the uh, icing on the cake, as it were, or something that came in after. We're trying to make the uh, the idea. To, we're, we were trying to give language to everyone else, right? Yeah. We were trying to, to help develop the sorts of language that we would use. Exactly, that's right. Measuring yeah, I think... how, how housing works and doesn't work. Yeah. yeah, I think one of the things we found when we started doing this was actually that surprisingly, I, mean, I, I assumed there would be a big sort of Christian literature on the theology of housing out there that we could kind of read and so on. And I kind of dug around in all the websites and the, um, the databases and so on and realized there really wasn't one. Yeah. There were a few exceptions. Um, so Professor Tim Gorringe had written a number of books on the built environment, which, was, which were very stimulating and good. But apart from that, there really hadn't been much, yeah. you know, depth, you know, uh, thinking about what housing looks like when viewed through the lens of the gospel yeah so um so we had to kind of do that 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 um groundwork and you know you and i worked on that and, and so on and so um i guess what, what's come out of that is uh we got a book um yeah. called coming home a theology of housing which is edited by malcolm brown who's also on the on the commission and um myself and Stephen, you've got a really good chapter in that and i recommend Stephen's chapter really good uh, writing there on um on this whole idea of um uh, space and neighbours, some really interesting sort of reflections on space and neighbours. I might get you to talk about that in a minute. <laughs> um, but I suppose my, my, my chapter was really trying to kind of give a broad brushstroke. So I think one of the things we str- we also realised that not only is there not a th- very deep theology of housing, but actually when you look at, when you ask government, when you ask yeah. housing associations, there isn't there isn't really a big picture of what housing is. Yeah, that, that's very apparent. It's very thin on the ground, the ability to even think or talk about it. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So what we wanted to do is, OK, what, what, what might a big picture of housing look like? And so yeah. look, you know, so we, we start, if you like, thinking about uh, the big picture of the gospel, the story that we find within the Bible from creation to new creation. Uh, and if you like, what that has is five key moments, if you like. I mean, you can parse this in all kinds of different ways, but you might say it begins with creation. We, you then have this moment of the, the fall, the, the kind of rebellion of the creation against the creator. You then get the long mm. history of redemption uh, you know, through the history of Israel in, with climaxing in the coming of Christ in the incarnation uh, and the death and resurrection of Christ. You then get the, the coming of the church, the new community, which is embodying this new vision of what it means to be human. And then, of course, in the, the last chapter is really the, the new creation, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. So if you take those as five moments mm-hmm. and you map those onto housing, what does it actually look like? And uh, I guess what we're saying is that, that the doctrine of creation, uh, if we're going to build housing that is in harmony with creation, it needs to be properly sustainable. We need to think about sustainability in housing, both the house, so, you know, because if, if it's true that around 50% of our carbon emissions actually come from buildings, yeah. uh, you know, let alone, let alone transport and everything else, we've got to do something about that. So sustainability is the key issue. You know, if we think about the fall, um, it tells us that actually unaided, without any intervention, 
things tend to decay. Housing mm -hmm. gets worse. Mm -hmm. doesn't get looked after it becomes unsafe uh, and therefore safety becomes a really important thing that we need to intervene in housing uh, to, to to prevent that natural decay of things into an unsafe and, and uh, an uncongenial and a bad place to live mm. so safety becomes a key um, kind of response to a fault the fallenness of the world it needs to be sustainable yeah. but it also needs to be we need to pay attention to safety as a real priority then think of the incarnation this idea that god takes up space he he comes in and, and lives in particular places in jesus christ you know in, in nazareth and capernaum in jerusalem he puts down roots in places mm. and that says something about stability mm -hmm. you know, if god if matter matters if physicality matters because of the incarnation then then i think what that says is that stability matters the ability of people to put down roots in right. a community and to feel they belong in a place and a space rather than feeling at the whim of the market that's going to move them on because the rent rises or the houses aren't safe or whatever it might be. So stability becomes a crucial thing. And then think about the, the community, the new community of the church, um, which is all about a new way of being together uh, yeah. with all the usual divisions of humanity overcome. Well, that says something about, you know, housing needs to be sociable. It needs to be space that allows people to exercise hospitality, inviting your neighbours in, a space where you can kind of gather together, communal space in developments. So sociability becomes important. Then, then the last picture, you know, the new, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. When you read those chapters of, of, of um, Revelation 21, 22, it's an extraordinarily beautiful place with jewels and gold. And, you know, it's an amazing, beautiful yeah. picture of a building. And, you know, of course, it, it is a building. It's a city. Yeah. And that says that housing needs to be truly satisfying. It needs to be a place that gives us delight that we come home to and we enjoy living in. So you've got their five values, if you like. The housing needs to be sustainable, safe, stable, sociable and satisfying. So that gives you a broad structure of that. That's what good housing looks like. Yeah. And that gives you a bit of a criterion on a housing development or a housing policy to think okay does it match those five tests yeah uh, they actually also mirror a lot of the things we were hearing from people who were at the sharp end of the housing crisis yeah people who were living in substandard housing were saying we desperately need housing to be safe that's what Grenf the, the people in grenfell needed we need housing to be stable that's what you know if you if you're living in rented property and the rent goes up all the time you can't live any long any great for any great length of time that's what you need you know if yeah. you live in a very isolated place a gated community where you're not in touch with your neighbors you need it to be sociable and so on so that's the kind of big picture that this is trying to kind of lay out and what is your what is your hopes for this commission's finding what do you if if uh putting yeah. it in a putting it in a, a a drawer and closing the door and walking away and forgetting about it is is zero and yep. 10 is <laughs> what's 10 what is yeah. what is the highest hopes you have for this i mean an immediate hope is that 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 framework of the five key values as to what housing should be. Now, as I say, I think they're rooted in Christian theology, yeah. they're rooted in our Christian story, but you don't have to be a Christian and buy into the no. theological narrative to, to recognize them as a picture of good housing. Yeah. Uh, one hope we have is that this would be widely acknowledged across government, housing industry, developers, housing associations. Yep, that's a picture of what good looks like. Yeah. Um, uh, whether people are Christians or not. People can recognise that as a as a as a um, as a picture of what good housing is like, um, mm -hmm. and some of the themes that are coming into the book. You know, some of those are fleshed out in some of the work that you've been doing on you know space making. Uh, that's a really interesting idea in terms of kind of community. So those ideas beginning to kind of um, take root. So that's one thing. We would love to see um, government adopting 
uh, some of the recommendations we're saying. So one of the things we're saying, if, if housing needs to be stable, uh, that also needs to be properly affordable. Mm. Uh, at the moment, the government in the, here in the UK is saying, what we need is more houses. We just need to build lots and lots and lots of more houses. Um, but our analysis suggests that actually when you do that, what tends to happen is that the new houses get bought up by people who already own houses. Yeah. Um, therefore, it doesn't tend to increase housing ownership. It doesn't always increase you know, a fair rental market. So actually what we really need is more affordable houses, properly yeah. affordable houses. And so you know, if one of the things, if that's one of the things we're saying, we would love to see government adopt a, a definition of affordability, which genuinely puts it into the reach of, of ordinary people. Yeah. Um, so that local people can buy and live in houses over the long term. They can invest in their communities and they can kind of build it. Uh, we'd love to see the church involved in this. So churches around the country recognizing that so many of the kind of social needs around in their mm -hmm. local community are related to housing. Yeah. So often the struggles that families have is because they're living in overcrowded housing or substandard housing or housing that, that, you know, constantly just can't get repairs done or whatever. Yeah. And that has an impact upon families and, and people. And therefore, it seems to be a natural thing uh, for Christians to get involved in housing issues in their local area. Yeah. And I guess what we're saying in this, this narrative of five values mapped onto the Christian story, this is a way of telling the gospel in bricks and mortar. Um, this is a way of actually yeah. bearing witness to the kingdom of God in the kind of actual fabric of the, of the communities that we build. Load so bearing like, witness. <laughs> exactly. That's right, yeah. So, yeah, we, we would love to see um, yeah. uh, government uh, adopting some of the, the recommendations we're, we're going on to ad adopting this framework. We want to see local churches get involved in housing need in their local area. We'd love to see the church institutions, the diocese and the Church of England, church commissioners having a bit of a shift in the way um, we use our housing as, as, yeah. and our land as a church. So it's not just about getting best value, getting the best financial deal we can for our building. What can we do? to solve some of the issues in our in our housing crisis using our land to build better communities in the long term and if you know we look back in five years time and see actually there's been a real shift in the way the church uses land more churches getting involved in housing issues in their local area um yeah. uh, government actually shifting their policies uh, in accord with the kind of framework we've talked about then i think we think we've, we've done something useful yeah i agree we're gonna have to check back in in a few months time and yeah, see, we see what happens once this once this thing gets let loose into the wild graham i noticed yeah. i've realized that often we have guests on these uh podcasts to to plug their books and things that they've written and i've realized hmm. you haven't plugged your latest book i know that's true <laughs> why yeah. being yourself is a bad idea tell me about why being why why is it bad for me to be myself i'm an existentialist i'm a I wrote the book on Kierkegaard, who is all about no. find your authentic self. Yep. <laughs> so it's a bad idea. What's going on? Yeah. Well, it's an interesting one. I mean, it's, it's like a, it's a bit of a provocative title. I some, love it. But, um, I guess what it's about is, I think what it began was realizing how we talk about ourselves these days. You know, we talk about expressing ourselves. We talk about um, being ourselves. We talk about finding ourselves, discovering ourselves. And I think we, have, we often have this sort of image that, that somehow there is some, some inner self inside us, some inner DNA, some inner right. kind of personality, some inner reality of, of me. Uh, and therefore, to find my way in life, I've got to kind of look inside myself uh, to be, if you like, um, and to, to find out who is this real me yeah. and express that real me. And uh, so, you know, you know what, what's the language that you know, when some I know, 
teenager goes out on a date or you go to a job interview what do people say well, well, you know, just, you be advice? just be yourself just be yourself yeah and it just strikes me that that it's a lot more complicated than it actually right. seems yeah particularly right. when you actually put that alongside jesus's advice which is actually to deny yourself <laughs> you lose yourself you'll find me you lose yeah. yourself well, that's weird you know that is really countercultural. so I, that's that's really kind of where it began this idea yeah. that in our culture we're saying be yourself discover yourself and jesus is saying no deny yourself lose yourself so what's yeah. going on there yeah and i guess it was drawing on a number of um cultural commentators charles taylor's great book sources of the self yeah Canadian philosopher um uh, a lot of it was drawn out of an idea of martin luther actually um martin luther talks about the human condition as being uh, that the heart turned in upon itself. Mm. But that's our, that's our human condition. That's our human sinful condition. The heart yeah. curved in upon itself. In other words, what we do is that rather than being open to God and to each other, our hearts are curved in, in sort of self-obsession, self-regard, self-interest. Yeah. Actually what grace does um, this, I think, is more inside of Augustine, I guess. But and what the gospel does for Luther is actually to turn our hearts outwards, outwards towards God and towards our neighbour. And so, I guess w- what this is is saying is that you know, just imagine that teenager going out on a date, being told just be yourself. It's, it's quite confusing advice because, actually, in some ways, the last thing a teenager wants is for someone else to know what's really going on inside his head or heart. And when he goes out on the date, all the jealousies, the anxieties, the fears, the doubts, the lusts, all that stuff, that's the last thing you want other people to know about. Mm-hmm. So you don't want that inner self to come out. And so it draws attention to the fact we actually are divided selves. We are much more confused than we think we are. There isn't maybe some inner self. Um, because when mm. we look inside ourselves, there are bits we like, there are bits we don't like. There's those, you know, when I feel like lashing out in anger or holding on to my money, am I to express that self? Which self am I to... Mm am I to express? And, and I suppose what this is actually saying that is that this, this question of identity is much more complex than we often, we often think. And that therefore, if I'm going into a sort of social encounter, or I'm going to a job interview, or I'm going to a, whatever it might be, actually, the last thing I should be doing is thinking about myself. Because actually, the thing I should be thinking about is that other person. Right. Yeah. Um, and that actually, if, if what Jesus says when he's asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? What's the secret of life? He doesn't say, be yourself. No, it says learn to love God and love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Be turned outwards towards God and towards your neighbor. Mm-hmm. And actually, in doing that, we create new selves. And this is why, you know, St. Paul's language of the old self and the new self is okay. so sort of valuable for us. So I guess what I'm saying is that it's not that we don't have to be ourselves, but which self are we going to be? And ourselves are created by the, the commitments we make, the relationships we form, by what we're devoted to. Yeah. Uh, so rather than by looking inside ourselves, we don't find ourselves that way. We find ourselves by losing ourselves in relation to God and to, and to one another. That's where we truly find ourselves. So that's the kind of idea that's hard. And this is the connection, actually, to uh, to the housing crisis, because yeah. Yeah. the self curved in on itself. Another word for that is the NIMBY. Yeah. Not in my backyard. Exactly. Which yeah. is the prime cause for almost any social problem <laughs> happening right now is that yeah. people just are fiercely clutching to what they think is rightly theirs at yeah. the expense of anyone else. And that is the self curved in on itself, isn't it? Absolutely right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And, you know, as you're quite right, the, the, the NIMBY mentality, you know, I want to guard my own space. I don't want anybody else moving into my neighborhood. I want my own, I want to put the walls up. Yeah stop anyone else coming in here is precisely holding on to what we have it's curved in 
Which um, is Martin Luther's definition of sin. It is, exactly. That's right, yeah. yeah. And actually, uh, that just isn't an option for a Christian. Yeah. A Christian has to be someone whose focus is not internal, is not in sort of some kind of, you know, uh, self-discovery sort of process, but it's outside. I often, in the book, I, I made, make this image of, a human being is more like onions or artichokes. Right. Um, so an artichoke is, you know, when you when you uh, prepare an artichoke, to eat, you, know, you peel away the layers and you find this delicious little sort of heart inside. Right. We think of ourselves as like that. You know, there's some inner me somewhere. Right, right. I can peel away all the expectations of other people, all the demands that everyone else makes upon me. I'll find this true inner essence. The real self, yeah. Well, actually, what if, what if we're actually more like onions? Mm-hmm. That when we peel away the expectations of other people, the social roles that we play, uh, you know, the, the demands that others make on us, there actually isn't anything there at all. There isn't something in our, in our In fact, actually, we are made by the relationships we form, the roles we play in society, uh, yeah. and so on. That's actually who we are. Yeah. Our selves are built over time. They grow and they develop. You know, there's a part in the Bible that talks about, you know, what we are has not yet been revealed. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I guess I wanted to say we are more like that. We are created and ourselves are made by the relationships we form, by welcoming in other people into our space, by giving up our own particular rights uh, for the sake of others, uh, and by opening our own hearts and lives to God, uh, our creator at the same time. So that's exactly right. There is that link between this and housing. Graham, or Bishop Graham, thank you so much for joining the tent. I really loved talking with you i i enjoy always when i get to to meet up with you uh but this has been particularly fun just to have an hour of time to to chat with you thank yeah, you for being those. my professor back in the day i i learned my reformation history from you and i loved it and thank you for being my boss a few years ago and yeah. uh, and now my colleague this has been a great joy i'm yeah, glad well... you stopped being a baptist <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are good things about being a baptist i well. know i know i know i it's, know um... But I'm really grateful and, you know, and well done for all you're doing with Tent Theology. I think it's a really exciting sort of venture and um, this podcast is, is great. It's reached, reaching a lot of people, which is good. So it's an honour for me to be on it. Really, Always really good to talk to you as well. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah, all the best for the rest of the podcast. Well, we do our best uh, not to be curved in on ourselves, even though we're sitting in our own rooms mm. on Zoom, but we're still yeah. doing our best not to be curved in. Exactly. Well, Graham, thank you so much. I bless you and I look forward to talking to you one day soon. Great. Until then, farewell. Bye-bye. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.